me today um, as we get through this. If I hack or whatever, you guys are more than six feet away from me. And uh, if, if Pastor Jordan gets up and runs out, feel free to follow him. Um, but we're going to try to get through this the best that we can. I wanted to add to one of the announcements today, or not add, add just to an announcement, uh, make a brand new announcement. Uh, tomorrow we hope to be able to share something very exciting that we are um, a part of as a church. On November 8th, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, many churches celebrate what is called Orphan Sunday, an opportunity for us just to recognize the 143 million orphans um, in our world, understanding that every face has a name and every name has a story. So every one of those has some kind of story. And it's an opportunity for us just to think about, pray about, and uh, there is an organization called No More Orphans that every year on Orphan Sunday, they do a big um, event, a big simulcast where they encourage anyone who's interested in learning how to advocate for orphans and, and, and uh, for uh, either adoption or foster care, um, how to advocate in that way, or anybody who is interested in foster care or adoption to come. The, normally, the church that's in town that su supports this, um, it's a $5,000 fee. Um, their building was not available this year, even though everything is online this year, so they didn't need a building. So when they, when they said, hey, we can't um, give our building this year, uh, Misty's former roommate from Liberty back in 1990-whatever, I won't go into detail about that, but uh, she's part of the ministry, and she said, hey, guys, could we use your church? Um, it's all online, so it's, we're not using our church. We're just um, using us as a name. Can I use you guys to be the sponsor in Jacksonville? And I said, well, how much are we talking here? And she said, it's free. It's already covered. All we need you guys to do is just support it. So I'm like, um, first she said, did you pray about it? Yes. No, I'm not praying about it. it means yes. Yeah, we, we're doing it. Sure. Let's let's go ahead. So um, they made a video. Tony Dungy is, is a part of it. And he made a video and actually has our church information on it at the end. And uh, the time is wrong. So they're having to fix that. So we're hoping tomorrow we're going to start sharing that. And we need you to help us share the mess out of it. Um, if you're interested in helping us call around different churches, um, what it is, it's a 30-minute um, simulcast on Sunday, November 8th at 6 o'clock. Um, just 30 minutes, and um, you watch it. You can register if you're interested in fostering, adopting, or interested in advocating. Um, they have different Zoom events after the simulcast that you can be a part of. And it's just a, a time just to bring the need again to our attention. So you're going to hear that tomorrow, hopefully, and just help us every way that you can um, with that. Okay? Okay, amen. With that said, if you have your Bibles... Revelation 8 and 9 is where we're going to be camping out today. And as we've been saying, the reason we're taking these in big chunks is so that we don't get caught up in the little details of this book and break out our, our charts and our decoder rings, but that we can keep the main thing the main thing. So welcome to week 12 of our series, Walking Through the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And Revelation is a conflict between good and evil, between Jesus and the Antichrist, between the Lamb of God and the beast, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the good news, according to this book, is our God wins. That is the good news here. And I want to tell you a story today that helps, I pray, set the tone of where we're going today. The year was 1982. The Strickland family, Billy, Ann, Kelly, and Micah, were moving from a home in, on the west side of Chapman Drive to a little house off of Merrill Road where Albertson used to be right there. And um, we had 
loaded all the boxes, got them in the new house, and we were going back to the house for the final walkthrough and also to get our Siamese cat, Pebbles. As we finally pack up, we put Pebbles in the back window. Um, we are in the car. We go down the road and make the very first left, the very first left that we take. Pebbles decided she no longer wants to be a part of the Strickland family. She leaves the front or the back window and jumps right on my mother's head. Uh, my mom begins to scream, Billy, Billy, Billy. And of course, Kelly and myself, I think we are probably wetting ourselves. We are laughing so hard. So finally, mom gets the cat down um, in the floorboard where the cat begins to go to do its best Rocky impression and just starts going to town on mom's legs and mom's screaming even more. And finally, dad says, Ann, open the door. So mom opened the door, Pebbles jumps out of the car, and we never saw her again. <laughs> it was at that moment that I come to realize that cats are evil. I mean, anything that would attack sweet innocent and strickland is evil i mean that's in my and i'm not saying we didn't go back and look for the cat so please don't hear what i'm not saying we just we didn't just go see you later we did go look for the cat but the cat was like uh i'm not leaving the west side so that's kind of where we were but how could here's a transition you might be wondering what in the world that has to do with anything what we're about to see today is god in judgment upon man allowing evil to jump upon an unbelieving world and have its way with that unbelieving world. It's been well said that it is often quietest before the storm, and there is no place that those words are more appropriate than when applied to the trumpet judgments that we're going to look at this morning in Revelation 8. Last week we saw the breaking of six of the seven seal judgments, the scroll that was given to Jesus that contained the plans of God for this world. And Jesus begins to open scroll by, or seal by seal, um, six of the seven. Today we're going to see the seventh seal open. And as the seventh seal is open, it now leads to seven trumpet judgments, which announce basically a more intense display of God's wrath, of God's judgment upon stubborn and unrepentant sinners. And let me just say this. If you came today hoping to get a nice, feel-good message I'm sorry this isn't the one. Um, I just want to apologize. We, you know, there, there are very little feel-good messages when it comes to the book of Revelation, especially right in the middle of it. Um, I, I do pray that we're able to focus on some amazing aspects of, of God today that we need to hear, but we're going to focus a lot, of, a lot of on the bad news. And for people who make their home in darkness, for people who love darkness rather than light, the question becomes, how can a righteous redeemer gain the attention of a wicked world how can a loving redeemer gain the attention of a wicked world and c.s lewis approached that question this way he said anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know they were eating or what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure so it's possible for us to ignore even pleasure but he says pain insists upon being attended to God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is this. As people, we can ignore pleasure. We can't ignore pain. 
We have to deal with pain. And so God will whisper to us in our pleasure, but he will shout to us in our pain. And this morning, we're going to hear the shouts of God on display even through the wrath of God, which will continue to point us and all people to the mercy of God. And today, my prayer is, when we think about um, what you see on the screen, shock and awe, my, my prayer is that we would be shocked by what is coming upon the earth, But at the same time, we would stand in awe of the mercy, the grace, and the protection that God gives us now and will give us um, forever. So I'm going to let you be seated today um, as we read, because we got a lot of reading to do, even though I know you'll be standing up in your hearts. And we're going to read Revelation 8 and 9 together. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen for you. So Revelation chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says this, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hell and and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On Their heads were, were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. 
His name is in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouth. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see and hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come this morning to this difficult text. We do so, Father, with humility in our hearts, Lord, understanding that you are God, that we are not. We pray, Father, that you would just show us, Lord, the, in humility, Father, what is coming upon this earth to those who do not know you. Lord, help us, Father, not to just check out from this, Lord, because maybe in our minds it doesn't apply to us. Help us, Lord, to press in, knowing that, Lord, there are people in our lives, there are those that we love, Lord, that if nothing changes, Father, this is their reality. And Lord, just give us a heart, Lord, for what's on your heart, which is the salvation of people. Lord, lead us into your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as if we look at chapter 8, as the seventh seal opens, there is silence in heaven. So the question becomes, why is heaven silent? And one answer is that heaven is silent so that the prayers of the saints can be heard. And we're going to look at that at the end this morning, so we'll kind of um, fly through that. But another answer is that the silence is a dramatic pause that makes even more impressive the judgments that are about to fall on the earth. The, the hour of God's final judgments has come, and soon after, trumpets begin to, to blow. And throughout Scripture... Trumpets were blown for a variety of reasons, two of which were, one, to warn of coming judgment, and two, to announce salvation. So to warn of judgment, to announce salvation. In the Gospels, Jesus even says that the sounding of the trumpet, or at the sounding of the trumpet, he will gather together all people either for judgment or for salvation. Therefore, trumpets trumpet symbolize judgment and salvation all throughout Scripture. And when it comes to these seven trumpet blasts of judgment, many scholars see a deliberate reference to two Old Testament events, one being the plagues in Egypt found in Exodus 7 through 10. These plagues that we know of, 10 plagues constituted a cosmic struggle between um, Yahweh and the gods, little g, of Egypt that were no gods at all. The other event, of course, is Joshua and the battle of Jericho, where the people of God were led um, around the city uh, once for six days by the ark and, of course, uh, priests who were blowing trumpets. On the final day, Israel 
encircled Jericho seven times. And when the seven trumpets blew after the seventh trip around the city and the shouting, the walls came tumbling down. So the picture is, as the trumpets announced defeat to Jericho, so now the trumpets will ultimately bring defeat to the world, to any who are not followers of Christ, to any who are unbelievers. Yet let me just say this. Oftentimes we live in a world, we live in a Christian culture where the God that we serve is, is probably just on, online with Mr. Rogers. He shows up, he sits down, he takes his shoes off, he says, good morning, boys and girls. And he's just happy, all loving, all care. He would never do anything mean, he would never do anything hateful, he would never do anything that we disagree with. And that is the God that often um, we are presented with in our world. And so let me just say this. We must fight against the sinful urge. I'm going to call it sinful to think that God is overreacting or that his punishment is too extreme. Today, if, if you find yourself cringing in disbelief as you hear about the judgments that God is going to pour upon unbelieving people, if you feel yourself saying, how can that be right? Know that it can only be for one reason. And that reason is this. You, you think too high of yourself and too low of God. That's the reason. You, take, you think too high of yourself and too low of God. For once the human heart has been able to understand a little bit of the um, immeasurable glory and majesty of God that we are able to know. So once we understand a little bit of the glory and majesty of God, nothing makes more sense um, what we just read than God has to punish sin. He has to. He has to do this. I think of the words of J.I. Packer, and you're going to see it on the screen. And what a powerful um, quote this is. It says, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's Wrath. So this is God um, responding according to his character. So he, yes, God is loving. Yes, God is um, merciful. But God is also wrathful and he is just. We have to understand that we can't just pick one side of God. We have to take him for who he is. And his, in his holiness or in his love, his love is also just. And his love is also wrathful. So therefore today, in light of what we just read, there are Three truths that I want to unpack for us today. Two involve things that we should be shocked at and one that we should be in awe of. So the first truth is this. Be shocked at the vengeance of God. Be shocked at the vengeance of God. And there's three little uh, truths I want to kind of flesh out from this. First of all, be shocked at the vengeance of God and pouring out his wrath upon the earth. God, we see here, pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Look at chapter 8, beginning at verse 7, or you can just look at the screen. And a third, verse 7, a third of the earth was burned up. Verse 8, something like a great mountain was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Verse 11, a third of the water became wormwood, and many people died. So the first of the four trumpets um, show a systematic, physical judgment across the earth, across creation, ultimately affecting the sin-stained earth. Yet it's good for us to realize from the beginning that there are limits that are placed here. John says over and over again, a third, a third. It shows a limit 
here, which reminds us that God will still be in control and that God is, in a sense, showing or exercising restraint. God isn't just punishing the whole earth, though he'd be just to do so. He is showing restraint in this moment. And think about these trumpets. In the first trumpet, you have hail and fire coming from heaven, burning up a third of the the trees and, and grass. In the second trumpet, you have something like a mountain is hurled into the sea, destroying a third of the sea, along with the sea creatures and the ships. And the end of verse 8 says, a third of the sea became blood. So don't miss the parallel there between that and the Egyptian plagues. And the third trumpet, a great star falls from heaven, inflicting a third of the earth's fresh water supply. So the wormwood comes and the, wor- the waters become bitter. And don't miss the, the parallel between what happened in, with Israel when they came to Mar, the bitter spring, and they threw a stick in it and it became sweet. Now this is the reverse effect of that. And then the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, the moon, the stars are struck. So they, they provide less light to the earth, taking us back to the 10th plague, the plague of, of darkness. So a major point from these first four trumpets, and please hear this, major point from these four, first four trumpets is that it is hopeless to put our trust in this world because this world is passing away. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, you will find yourself holding so tight to this world that in the end, you'll be left holding nothing. You'll be left holding nothing. It'll all go. It'll all be removed. And these judgments are so shocking and so severe. Again, it's our natural tendency to say that, you know, it can't mean that. It's our natural tendency to say, well, maybe this is just metaphorical. Think about this. Even if this is not true, if this is metaphorical, what would it be metaphorical for? This wouldn't be metaphorical for God sending unicorns with rainbows and and fairies on top of them just bringing good to our land and to our world. No, it would be metaphorical for something really, really bad. But just think about it. When we feel tempted to water down the reality of these judgments, just listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And before God unleashes the last three judgments, why he has the world's attention we hear the following declaration in verse 13 of chapter 8, and it says this, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. It's not going to be good is what that means for those who dwell on the earth. So be shocked at the vengeance of God in pouring out his wrath upon the earth. But then the second truth is be shocked at the vengeance of God in pouring out his wrath through his enemies. So God will use his enemies to pour out his wrath. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, or look at the screen, verse 1. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Verse 2, he opened the shaft, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So the fifth trumpet sounds becoming the first woe that we just heard of. And a fallen star is giving the, given a key to the bottomless pit. Now, stars are used symbolically throughout Scripture to, to refer to, in Numbers 24, a prominent person, um, Isaiah 14 to Satan himself, Job 38 to angels, um, and to Revelation 1 to leaders or protectors of the churches. The fact that this star here in Revelation 9 has already fallen 
points us to the fact that this star is Satan himself. He was cast out of God's presence and heaven's glory when sin entered into his heart. And as he opens the bottomless pit, legions of hell are unleashed upon the earth in the form of locusts that look like horses prepared for battle. They have human faces and they have lion-like teeth and breastplates of iron. And the de demonic hordes uh, come against those who live for the earth with speeds like chariots and with stings like scorpions. And think about this. These locusts unleashed from this bottomless pit are coming not to, not to turn loose against believers. They are coming and, and they are turned loose against those who followed them. Against the children of the enemy. Against the children of the devil. They are coming and declaring war against their own. And it just shows what Satan does in devouring his own, loving every minute of it. Yet don't miss verse 3. Their power is given to them by God, meaning that they are completely under control. Or another way to say it is this. Even demons do the bidding of God. It's weird to think about, but it's true. Even demons do his bidding. Yet these aren't your average Hungry locusts trying to devour plants, which is what locusts do. No, they will instead be targeting people with the authority to torment yet not to kill them. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they torment unbelievers for a set period of time, for five months that we're about to read. And their torture causes people, according to verse 6, to long for death. Just follow with me here. Imagine living in a world where a time is coming where people will say, I wish I could die, and they will ultimately mean it. They will mean it, and yet there is nothing they can do to get their wish. They won't be able to die in that moment. They won't be able to leave the, the horror of this earth. They'll have to endure it for whatever so time that God gives them here on the earth to do so. So the enemies of God pouring out wrath upon their own, upon those who do not know God. And then number three, be, be shocked at the vengeance of God and pouring out his wrath against all evildoers. So God is pouring out his wrath against all evildoers. Look at verses four and five. Now that I just mentioned, they were told to harm only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So the sixth trumpet or the, the second woe is introduced, and a third of mankind, if you keep reading, a third of mankind will be wiped out across the earth by four angels that are brought forth that had been bound at the Euphrates. And they come with an army of 200 million is what we read. 10,000 times 10,000 times 2 is what it, what it says. And some commentators, maybe you've heard this, some commentators have tried so desperately to identify what you read here with um, modern futuristic weapons of helicopters and tanks and fighter jets. And they say, it's just a picture that John saw what would be in the future. And in the future is helicopters. And the future is all of this. And here's the deal. Because these creatures are identified as the armies of four wicked angels of the Euphrates, it seems most reasonable, at least in my mind, that these are symbols of an army of demons that are unleashed upon this earth to bring death and to bring destruction and just look at verse 15 here in chapter 9 
These demons, or this demonic angels and their work are under the sovereign permission of God. For God has planned their release for a specific hour, day, month, and year. So don't just think of life as merely a series of haphazard events tossed in the air by blind fate. Don't, don't view your life in that way. Whatever happens to us in our daily lives is known by our all-knowing, omnipotent God. It's directed by Him. Think about this. The, the events of your life, the difficulties of your life, the tragedies of your life, all of those things pass through the hand of God before they ever touch you. All of them. Sometimes we, we wonder, God, do you know? Do you know what I'm going through? And every event that hits our lives first passed through His hand. He allowed it to touch our lives. There, therefore, it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. Think about this. The first prayer that we find ourselves praying when difficulty comes into our lives is, God, please take it away. Right? God, remove it. Get it near. And God is thinking, I could remove it if I want. I could have kept it from you. But instead, I put it upon you for a purpose. So instead of asking God to remove it, instead, ask him for the purpose of it. God, reveal your purpose in and through this difficult time in my life. In fact, I, I heard it this week. History has a purpose, and its purpose is His. Its purpose is His. History has a purpose, and it's God's purpose. But now, let's get back to the devastation here. When we place chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, a fourth of mankind wiped out, with chapter 9, verses 13 through 19, a third of the population wiped out, together we can estimate that over half of the world's population will be wiped out. Over half. What will happen to those who are still living through it all? How will they respond? Surely, those who are still living through it all, surely they will say, you know what? This is bad. This is all coming because of sin. We need to repent and God save us. Surely, that's how they're going to respond, right? But that's not how they respond. Which leads us to the second truth. Be shocked at the vileness of man. Be shocked at the vileness of man. In fact, perhaps the more disturbing than the death and devastation that we saw in chapter 9 is the reaction of the survivors of this plague as shown in the last two verses of chapter 9. Will they turn to God? Will they turn from their sin? Will they cry out for a Savior? And John answers, no, they won't. In fact, look at verses 20 and 21 again. Or on the screen. It says this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their deaths. Don't miss this. We should be shocked at the vileness of man who will not repent even in the middle of God's wrath. They won't repent. And let me just say this. The effect of these seven trumpet judgments are not meant to cause us to sit around and debate what the lion's head means and what the locust tail means and how that relates to the political future of Iran or, or Israel. No, the purpose of these trumpet judgments is to cause us, hear this, to cause us to turn from our sin. That's the point. Turn from our don't sit. That's what God is saying. Don't sit around with your chart saying, well, this means this. No. Instead of 
Stop living in your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn away from all that Satan is doing in your life. The fun that Satan is playing. Turn away from that and turn to him. That's the point of this. And unbelievers here are depicted just like Pharaoh. Think about that. The story of Pharaoh. Despite judgment after judgment, despite plague after plague, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, resisted God in sinful rebellion. And this is what we see at the end, at the end times. People are resisting. They, they will not acknowledge God. They will not turn from their sin. This is sinful humanity who know, who see, who feel the effects of sin, yet they refuse. They refuse to repent. The great preacher Donald Barnhouse put these verses in painful perspective this way. There is no evidence in the Bible. There is no evidence in history. There is no evidence in prophecy which would indicate that men have ever been brought to God in great numbers through tribulation. Reluctantly, we are forced to accept the verdict of Romans 3. There is none who does good. No, not one. There's none. And one would think that the terrors of God would bring sinful man to their knees, but it won't. Past the point of no return, they remain untouched. They remain unmoved, even by the wrath of God. And there's no more tragic picture here of the depravity of man than that to refuse to repent, even in the midst of the horror of God's judgment. They refuse to repent. And be shocked at that. Be shocked that man won't repent even in the midst of God's wrath. But then also be shocked that man refuses to recognize the worth of God. We see here that they keep worshiping things that shouldn't be worshipped. And here's where we realize that you, brothers and sisters, God made you to be a worshiper. Did you know that? You are a worshiper. God made you to be a worshiper. Therefore, you and I, we will always find someone or something to worship. The problem is, according to Romans 1, sin always or ultimately leads us to, first of all, worship ourselves. And then to worship other created things. So if we're not careful, we can quickly stop worshiping the Lord and we can start worshiping everything else. But you are going to worship something. Don't miss that. You're going to worship something. And just listen to this loose but very vivid um, paraphrase of chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, which highlights the hardness of the human heart. It says this, the remaining men and women who weren't killed didn't change their way of life. They didn't quit worshiping demons. They didn't quit centering their lives around lumps of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood that couldn't see, hear, or move. There wasn't a sign of a change of heart. They plunged right into their murderous, occultic, promiscuous, and thieving ways. And one of the strangest things about human nature is that Human nature will not change because of punishment. Listen, we might change our behavior for a moment when we see the consequences of sin coming at us. We might change for a moment, but our hearts still are evil. And so because they're evil, we will always run back to sin. Only the good news of Jesus Christ can change us, and hear this, keep us changed. Only the good news can change us and keep us changed. And that's the point. Don't miss this. Oftentimes, here's what we believe. We believe that God sent his son Jesus to deliver us from the punishment of sin. And that's all it means, is that Jesus came, if we accept him, that we won't go to hell. But the point is, Jesus came and he died not just to deliver us and keep us from the punishment of sin. He also died so that we can be free from the presence of sin in our lives. 
so we don't have to be chained by sin anymore. In fact, Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We can walk in freedom in this life. It's a picture of what Christ is doing for us. But be shocked at the vileness of man and even in the midst of wrath, wanting or refusing to turn to God. And then lastly, so be shocked at the vengeance of God, be shocked at the vileness of man, which leads us to stand in awe. And our last truth is this, stand in awe of the virtue of God or stand in awe of the goodness of God. Look at verse, chapter 8, back to verses 3 through 5. And I want to show you something that is so powerful. It says this in verses 3 through 5 or on the screen. Another angel came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and threw it on the earth. And it seems odd that in the midst of all that we see here to talk about the virtue of God or the goodness of God, yet don't miss the mercy and the grace of God at the beginning, in the middle, and even at the end of these sounding trumpets. We see God's goodness here in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, get this, in answering the prayers of man. This is the first picture here where God is answering the prayers of man. One commentator said this, no one is a firmer believer in the power of prayer than the devil. Not that he practices it, but he suffers from it. So Satan doesn't practice prayer, but he suffers from God's people praying. And as we come back to the beginning of chapter 8, after the silence in heaven, right before the trumpets start blasting, we are introduced to the prayers <coughs> excuse me, of all the saints. Um, and, and don't miss this. Where do we find the prayers? They're piling up at the altar of God. If you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered where your prayers go and what God does with them, here is one answer. They go to the altar before his throne. So think about this. Century after century after century, brothers and sisters have cried out to God in prayer. God calls your name to be hallowed. Cause your kingdom to come. God, cause your will to be done. And these prayers have not been in vain. Those prayers have been heard. Those prayers, even though Satan tries to block them or thwart them, not, not one prayer has been lost. Not one prayer has been forgotten. Not one prayer has been ineffective. God hears our prayers, but understand this. When we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we are praying for things like Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 8 and 9 to eventually happen. And what I mean by that is this. Therefore, like it or not, the prayers of the saints are part of God's judgment that he will send upon the earth. Another commentator put it this way. The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered. This surely means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgment of God. But don't miss this. Don't miss this beautiful picture. And that is this. When our prayers go up, his kingdom comes down. When our prayers go up, his kingdom comes down. But only that is true if we're praying not for our will, but for his did you know that many believers believe that prayer is about, they, they think somehow that prayer is a means by which we are able to get our will done in heaven. And that is never the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is about getting God's will done on earth. Not about getting your will done in heaven. 
If all your prayer life consists around you, 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 your prayers don't go far enough. Your prayers don't go far enough. Understand this. We need to stand in awe as we continue to cry out to him, praying for the hallowing of his name, for the coming of his kingdom, for his will to be done in earth as it's being done in heaven, as we pray for the forgiveness of sins, as we commit them here on earth, but also asking God to help us to forgive others. Because as Jesus said, if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us. So that kind of becomes a really big deal. And then we pray that we also are able to stand against the schemes and the wicked um, pictures of what Satan tries to bring into our lives, knowing that his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. But all of this here in Revelation 8 and 9 is centered around the wrath of God upon sin. I want to end today with the words of Randy Smith. And this is a long quote, but a powerful quote. And he says, in Romans 1.18, we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Like it or not, our God is a wrathful God. Due to his perfect holiness, he must display anger to all that oppose him. If he failed to do this, he would not be worthy of our worship, nor would he be just in dealing with evil. God's wrath is not an uncontrollable, irrational Emotional anger provoked by malice or revenge like ours, by which we go, amen. It is a settled disposition that refuses to compromise and tolerate sin. What brings about God's wrath? The verse tells us all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God must oppose all that oppose him. And when put this way, all humans, hear this, are under the wrath of God until we flee to the one who took God's wrath in our place, Jesus Christ, through his death upon the cross. And don't miss this today, brothers and sisters. If not for God's mercy and grace, we too would be numbered among the people of Revelation 8 and 9. If not for the mercy and grace of God, we too would be awaiting the wrath of God. If not for his mercy and grace, yet we as children of God will never have to suffer the wrath of the Lamb because we have turned in faith to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And don't miss this. It becomes very clear that even in the midst of God's wrath, even in the midst of each and every judgment, God is still pouring out mercy upon the earth because he's still urging unbelievers to repent. That's the purpose. Each trumpet blows and God is saying, repent. Excuse me, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to endure this. Repent. And understand this, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, if you're listening online and you're not a believer, understand that these judgments are coming upon anyone and everyone who will not turn to Jesus Christ. If the, the only way for us to escape the wrath of the Lamb is to be clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I pray if you're here and you don't know Christ, take advantage of God's mercy in bringing you to this holy moment and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But for us, maybe across this room, children of God, let me say this. Stand in awe of the fact that God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. Let me ask a question I ask a lot around here. If God answered all the prayers that you prayed this week, would would the population of hell decrease and the population of heaven increase? How would the kingdom of God move forward if God answered all your requests this week? And here's the problem. Most of us, if we were to be honest, if God answered all of our requests this week, the only person's lives that would be better are ours or our families. 
we pray with too small a scope. We, 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 pay, we pray with too small of a, a, of a, a purpose and too small of a, a picture of what God wants to do. Brothers and sisters, maybe this week, every day, pray to God that he would cause his name to be hallowed. His name to be revered. His name to be feared. His name to be uplifted. That his kingdom would come in your life. His kingdom would come in your life. And his will would be done in you. As it's being done by the angels in heaven. That you would ask God to forgive you and lead you to forgive others. Key point here. Forgive others. We need his forgiveness. We must forgive others. And then to lead you away from temptation. Because God will never lead you to temptation. And to deliver you from the evil one. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to pray and call, uh, call the musicians forward as we enter into this time. <coughs> Let's pray. Fathers, we approach you yet once again. We do so, Lord, humbly. Lord, knowing, as was said at the beginning, this was not a feel-good message by any means. But, Lord, forgive us for limiting you. Forgive us, God, for only accepting portions of you that we enjoy and refusing to accept, God, that which you have revealed about yourself. And, Lord, you are loving, you are merciful, but you are also just. And you are wrathful. And you must punish sin. And you have. You have punished sin upon your Son, Jesus Christ, so that if any will call upon him, they will be saved. But for those who refuse him, you will also punish sin upon every single unbelieving life. And Lord, that might not do much to us because we're saved, but Lord, that should because we know people who aren't. God, I pray for anyone in this room, anyone listening, God, online, or anyone listening, God, at home, that you would, in this moment, if they don't know you, Holy Spirit, convict them. Holy Spirit, show them they need you. Show them there is only one Savior for sin in this world, and His name is Jesus. May they call upon His name and be saved. But we also pray, God, that this, this day you would show us as yours the power of prayer, God, that you aren't missing our prayers. Lord, our prayers aren't insignificant, Lord. They are piling up around your altar. You're hearing, God. You're answering. Lord, help us to give ourselves, Lord, for, to give ourselves to praying more for the hallowing of your name, the coming of your kingdom, for your will to be done, for you to forgive us, God, because we miss the mark every day of our lives, and for you to help us to forgive others. Finish this time in Jesus' name. 